Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. More than 85,000 deaths a year in the United States are directly attributed to alcohol use. And lifetime prevalence of alcohol use disorder, or AUD, is as high as 29%. Despite AUD being a chronic disease with readily available medications for treatment, fewer than 10% of individuals receive such treatment. Dr. Audrey Umbright is an ambulatory care pharmacist at Mayo Clinic Health System in Mankato, Minnesota, and a subject matter expert on the topic. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Unbright to guide us on an evidence-based AUD treatment plan using FDA-approved and off-label medications. So by the end of the presentation today, uh, you should be able to describe alcohol use disorder as a chronic disease. Secondly, identify evidence-based medications for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. And then lastly, select from those medications an appropriate medication based on your individual patient factors. But first of all, why do we care? Well, I think with all of the emphasis and attention that is being given to the opioid crisis nowadays, it's really easy to forget that alcohol use disorder is actually the number one substance use disorder in the United States. In fact, the lifetime prevalence of alcohol use disorder has been increasing over the last few decades. It used to be around 20%, and now it is closer to 30%. However, despite this prevalence, fewer than 10% of adults with alcohol use disorder are treated with a medication. Part of the reason for this disconnect might be because there is still quite a stigma attached to substance use disorders, which is why our first learning objective is to describe alcohol use disorder as the chronic disease that it is. To get us started, we'll talk about a few definitions. So there's actually lots of different types of unhealthy alcohol use, including binge drinking and risky drinking. Um, not all of these type of behaviors rise to the level of an alcohol use disorder, although many people who um, do binge drinking or who engage in risky drinking do go on to develop an alcohol use disorder. So binge drinking is defined as consuming enough alcohol over the period of two hours or less such that your alcohol, uh, blood alcohol level can be measured at 0.08 grams per deciliter or more. Uh, that tends to be about four to five standard drinks. Now risky drinking, on the other hand, refers to any alcohol consumption that puts an individual at risk for health consequences. Um, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in the United States has estimated that consumption amounts of alcohol that increase health risks for men uh, under the age of 65 is more than 14 standard drinks per, per week or more than four drinks on any one day. Uh, for women of all ages or for men over the age of 65, that number is seven standard drinks per week or more than three drinks on any one day. Now, alcohol use disorder, on the other hand, is defined by the fifth edition of the Diagnostic Statistic, Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders um, and is defined as a problematic 
pattern of alcohol use leading to clini clinically significant impairment or distress that is manifested by at least two of the following uh, symptoms that occur within a 12-month period. So one, the alcohol is often taken in larger amounts or over longer periods of time than what the person intended. Two, there's a persistent desire on behalf of the patient or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control their alcohol use. Three, a great deal of time is spent uh, in activities uh, necessary to obtain, to actually drink, or to recover from the effects of alcohol. Four, uh, craving or a strong desire or urge to use alcohol is present. Five, alcohol use results in failures uh, at work, school, or home. Six, the alcohol use is continued by the patient despite it causing interpersonal problems. Seven, uh, the patient uh, may have given up or reduced important social, occupational, or other recreational activities um, in order to engage in alcohol use. Eight, the alcohol use is continued uh, in situations that are physically hazardous, such as drinking and driving. Uh, nine, the alcohol use is continued by the patient despite the patient having knowledge of having a physical problem that is caused or exacerbated by the alcohol. And then the last two uh, symptoms, tolerance and withdrawal, are probably the symptoms that we think about most often when we think about a substance use disorder. But you'll notice they don't have to be present in order for uh, this disorder to be diagnosed. And those symptoms are tolerance and withdrawal. Tolerance is, um, of course, the need to uh, consume more alcohol in order to achieve the same intoxication or desired effects than what, what was uh, consumed before. And then withdrawal is any number of symptoms that occur in the absence of alcohol that are relieved by taking alcohol or a similar substance. And for alcohol withdrawal, those symptoms are typically um, anxiety, insomnia, tremors, and in worst case scenarios, uh, seizure. Now, depending upon the number of symptoms that a patient presents with, the alcohol use disorder can be further classified as mild, moderate, or severe, with severe being six or more of those symptoms present. Now, I want to point out here that as we talk about the medication studies, most of the studies that have been done have been done on patients who have moderate or severe alcohol use disorder. Um, to my knowledge, very little, if any, studies have been done uh, for the mild alcohol use disorder category. So moving on, uh, what do I mean about alcohol use disorder being a chronic disease? Well, I think the stigma that's out there is that it is a moral failing, right? Alcohol use disorder results because a person has mad, made bad choices. And if they would just make better choices, they wouldn't have this problem. But I think as we go forward, um, you'll see that there's actually several compelling arguments for why alcohol use disorder and other substance use disorders are actually a chronic disease. And those include the pathophysiology of the disorder, the preventable nature of the disorder, the treatability of it, and most importantly, the consequences of not treating it. So to help us understand this a little bit better, it's helpful to compare alcohol use disorder to another common chronic disease that I think we're probably all familiar with, and that is type 2 diabetes. So if we take a look at type 2 diabetes, we certainly recognize that our lifestyle, diet, and exercise habits can play a role in developing this condition. Uh, patients with sedentary lifestyles who consume uh, diets high in unrefined sugar, or excuse me, refined sugar, and, and other carbohydrates might be at risk for metabolic syndrome, developing insulin resistance, and eventually type 2 diabetes. But we also know that not everybody who has that lifestyle develops type 2 diabetes. And there are certainly 
plenty of patients with type 2 diabetes who have relatively healthy lifestyles, and yet they still develop the condition. So there's obviously some level of genetic predisposition um, that plays a role in the development of this disorder. And similarly, in alcohol use disorder, the same is certainly true. Uh, we can't deny the fact that our choices do play a role. You cannot have an alcohol use disorder without first consuming alcohol. Um, but that's not the only thing that, are going, that is going on, and certainly not everyone that consumes alcohol develops an alcohol use disorder. In fact, studies have shown that about 50% of the pathophysiology of an alcohol use disorder is due to heritable factors or the genetic predisposition. Back to the diabetes column, um, if we look at the preventable nature of it, we regularly screen adults for elevated blood sugar. Um, and if it's present, we, we will give folks any numbers of interventions and sometimes even medications to help treat that elevated blood sugar at that pre-diabetes level with the hopes of preventing the progression to full-blown type 2 diabetes. And in alcohol use disorder, the same is true. The U.S. Preventative Task Force actually recommends screening all adults age 18 or older for risky alcohol use, and if present, making interventions to help our patients uh, reduce the likelihood that they may progress to alcohol use disorder. Now, unlike type 2 diabetes, at least as far as I am aware, there are no medications yet at this level that have been proven effective to help prevent the development of alcohol use disorder. But speaking of medications, when those lifestyle changes fail, um, we definitely do not hesitate to give any number of medications to our type 2 diabetes patients to help them lower their blood sugar levels. And in fact, over 90% are treated with at least one of those medications. However, uh, in the case of alcohol use disorder, as I shared in the beginning, uh, fewer than 10% are treated with medications. And then finally, the big picture, the big reason why we care. You know, we know what happens if we don't take care of diabetes well. It increases the risk for cardiovascular disease, nephropathy, neuropathy, retinopathy, and of course, similar is true for alcohol use disorder. Untreated and uncontrolled alcohol use disorder increases the risk of any number of cancers, as well as cardiovascular disease, liver disease, and neuropathy. So, we're going to move into our first assessment question. Uh, so, a reminder to navigate to pollev.com, pull out your smartphones, or text MAYO RX to 22333. And the question here is, which statement is true about alcohol use disorder? A, alcohol use disorder is caused solely by our lifestyle choices. B, alcohol use disorder has higher relapse rates than other chronic diseases. C, there are no evidence-based treatments for alcohol use disorder, or D, alcohol use disorder increases the risk for cardiovascular disease. All right, so the answer here is actually D, alcohol use disorder increases the risk for cardiovascular disease. Uh, answer A is incorrect, as we talked about, about 50% of the pathophysiology of alcohol use disorder is due to genetic predisposition. Um, answer B might be a little bit, bit misleading. Alcohol use disease actually does not have any higher relapse rates than other chronic diseases compared to asthma or hypertension, for example. After a period of control, about 50% of people do relapse, um, but that is no different uh, compared to other diseases. And then I'm glad nobody picked C, um, otherwise we wouldn't have a presentation today. There are evidence-based treatments for alcohol use disorder. So moving on to learning objective number two, what are those evidence-based medications? 
So first of all, I just want to take a moment and uh, review the goals of therapy of medications. Um, so certainly our gold standards is going to be promoting abstinence for our patients with alcohol use disorder. But secondary goals um, include decreased consumption of alcohol and harm reduction. It's not always possible uh, to obtain abstinence for every patient every time. So I want you to keep in the back of your mind that outcomes based on just decreasing overall alcohol consumption are appropriate. So in the United States, there are three medications that are FDA approved for the treatment of alcohol use disorder, and those can be recalled through the acronym AND, A for acamprosate, N for naltrexone, and D for disulfiram. Off-label, today we're going to talk about gabapentin and topiramate primarily. These two medications are included in the American uh, Psychiatric Association guidelines for the alcohol use disorder treatment. However, I do want to note that there are several other medications um, that have been investigated off-label for the treatment of alcohol use disorder, such as ondansetron and baclofen, uh, but those medications are not included in the guidelines at this time. To better understand how these medications work, I think it's helpful to just review the neuroadaptation processes that occur in the brain in the setting of chronic alcohol use. And there's two pathways that we're going to focus on. The reward pathway, meaning I drink because it makes me feel good, or the relief pathway, I drink because if I don't drink, I feel bad. Um, so on the reward pathway side of things, uh, when alcohol is consumed, it facilitates the release of dopam dopamine and our endogenous endorphins in the ventral tegmental area of the midbrain. This results in a euphoric feeling, so we feel good. And that, of course, is a positive reinforcement that drives the behavior to drink. Now, in the setting of chronic alcohol use, a priming and sensitizing effect also occurs on these receptors, so that when alcohol is absent, those receptors are hungry. They want their substrate, and that causes craving. Now, naltrexone is an opioid antagonist. So it not only blunts the euphoric effects of the alcohol consumption, but more importantly, by occupying those opioid receptors, it reduces the craving that would otherwise result when the alcohol is absent. Now on the relief uh, pathway side of things, uh, we know that when alcohol is consumed, it facilitates the release of gamma aminobutyric acid, or GABA, in the amygdala, or the fear center of our brain. Uh, the, the release of GABA uh, also balances out or uh, counteracts the activity of glutamate, which is our excitatory neurotransmitter. And so the result is a very calm, relaxed feeling. In the setting of chronic alcohol use, when alcohol is removed, the glutamate predominates. And so you get symptoms of anxiety tremors, insomnia, and even seizures. Um, so acamprosate, gabapentin, and topiramate all work on the gabaminergic system, but in slightly different ways. So the proposed mechanism of action for acamprosate is that it stimulates uh, GABA, GABA neurotransmission. Um, and in, in vitro studies, it's also been shown that acamprosate is actually active at GABA-B receptors, but not at the GABA-A receptors. Topiramate um, also has some activity at some of the GABA-A receptors. Um, and gabapentin is, is a curious one. Structurally, it is related 
to GABA, but it actually doesn't bind to either of the GABA receptors itself. So its exact mechanism of action is a little bit unknown. But it's thought um, that it modulates this GABA system. The net result um, from any of these medications, however, is a decrease in craving. Now, disulfiram um, is an odd duck uh, because it doesn't really work on the craving uh, aspect at all. It works purely through negative reinforcement. So as you'll recall, when we consume ethanol, it is metabolized by alcohol dehydrogenase into acetaldehyde. And acetaldehyde is further metabolized by aldehyde dehydrogenase into acetate. Now, disulfiram is an aldehyde dehydrogenase inhibitor. And so when ethanol is consumed, when disulfiram is on board, it causes a buildup of this acetaldehyde metabolite, and that causes lots of nasty side effects, nausea, vomiting, palpitations, uh, blurred vision, and even dyspnea in some cases. So the idea here is that if a person is taking disulfiram and consumes even a small amount of alcohol, they're going to feel awful, and that will therefore drive the behavior, the negative reinforcement, to not drink anymore. Now, in terms of efficacy, um, there was a meta-analysis in 2014 that looked at quite a few randomized placebo-controlled trials um, that evaluated um, the efficacy of these medications based on two primary outcomes. So the return to any drinking, or we can consider that the um, abstinence outcome, or the return to heavy drinking. So we can consider this the reduction in, in alcohol consumption outcome. Now, for acamprosate, you can see they uh, evaluated 27 studies of just over 7,500 patients, and they did find that acamprosate was statistically significant in uh, reducing the risk for return to any drinking with a number needed to treat of just 12. And although there was a trend towards significance in the return to heavy drinking, it failed to show significance. Now, Trexone, on the other hand, had more studies. There were 53 studies uh, with uh, just over 9,000 uh, 9, patients. And the number needed to treat to return to any drinking was 20 for naltrexone. The number needed to treat to return to heavy drinking was 12. Now, they did look at disulfiram, um, but you'll notice they only included two trials with just under 500 patients. And unfortunately, disulfiram failed to show benefit in either one of those outcomes. Um, however, most of the trials that have shown benefit with disulfiram were not included in this meta-analysis because they're not placebo-controlled. Now, at first, that raises, like, a huge red flag in my mind because we're taught, you know, placebo-controlled trials is the gold standard, right? Um, but if we think about it a little bit further, it actually makes sense. So imagine that you have a patient enrolled in a disulfiram placebo-controlled trial, and you're giving your patient the placebo. You are going to counsel your patient as if they are receiving disulfiram. So you tell them this medication is going to make you very, very sick if you consume any alcohol at all. So it's very important that you completely avoid alcohol. And so in these trials, there's actually a very, very large placebo effect. And since disulfiram doesn't work on the brain chemistry, you know, it's not giving the patient any other benefit by reducing craving or anything like that, it's very difficult for disulfiram to actually be proven effective compared to placebo. Um, the other problem with disulfiram trials that we've long observed is that there's a huge medication adherence problem, and that makes sense too. We're giving you a pill that's going to make you feel awful if you drink and if you want to drink, 
you stop taking it. Um, so what's been observed is that uh, trials that have the patient be witness taking their dose tend to do much better um, compared to trials that do not have that added, um, added control. Now this meta-analysis actually did include a few trials that actually looked at a campersate directly compared to naltrexone. There were four of these trials. And there was no difference between the two of those medications in, in either outcome. Now for gabapentin and topiramate, although they were included in those meta-analysis, the number of trials was just so very small that they weren't able to show any benefits. Um, so I did want to try uh, pull out an example uh, of a uh, trial that did show benefit for each one of these medications, but I do want to note that not every trial has shown benefit. So this is just an example of one that did. In 2014, um, there was a, a gabapentin trial, a 12-week trial, randomized, controlled, placebo-controlled, uh, uh, with a number of uh, 150 patients. There were three arms, placebo, gabapentin 900 milligrams a day, and gabapentin 1,800 milligrams a day. And they measured abstinence rate as well as the rate of no heavy drinking. So again, we can think about that as the reduction in alcohol consumption. And the results, uh, the results did show significant benefit for actually both of the arms. Uh, the number needed to treat here is based off of the gabapentin 1800 milligram dose. And you can see that it improved both the abstinence rate as well as the no heavy drinking or reduction in alcohol consumption rate. With a number needed to treat of eight for abstinence and five for the reduction in heavy drinking. A very similar trial was done with topiramate uh, several years earlier, back in 2003. It was also a 12-week trial with 150 patients, um, interestingly enough. There were two groups, placebo uh, versus topiramate, 300 milligrams a day. And they um, measured their outcomes uh, slightly differently than the previous trial. They measured drinks per day, drinks per drinking day, the percentage of heavy drinking days, and then the percentage of days that the patient was abstinent. But similarly, um, they did find benefit in all four of those outcomes. Um, patients in the topiramate arm had 2.8 fewer drinks per day, 3.1 fewer drinks per drinking day, 27.6% fewer heavy drinking days, and 26.2% more days abstinent. Now, limitations to both uh, of these trials, both the gabapentin and the topiramate trial, but I think we could also extend to most alcohol use disorder medication trials include the, first of all, the small sample size. Many of the trials in, enrolled, you know, anywhere from 100 to 200 patients, so that 150 mark is pretty, pretty typical. Our sample sizes also tend to skew male and Caucasian, and as I had mentioned um, closer towards the beginning, most of these patients, again, are moderate to severe alcohol use disorder patients. Um, secondly, we rely a lot on the self-report of alcohol consumption. Now, um, this can be uh, mitigated, and a lot of studies do this, by measuring biomarkers that are sensitive to alcohol consumption, uh, such as the glutamyl transpeptidase, or GGT, levels, which can be elevated up to a week after um, alcohol consumption, heavy alcohol consumption. Uh, but nevertheless, when the primary outcome is that self-report, um, that's certainly a limitation. Uh, thirdly, the duration of these trials, only 12 weeks, which is, again, pretty typical for a lot of the trials that are out there, um, leaves us with questions about, you know, what is the longer-lasting effect? Does the effect persist past that? 
And then the last thing that I'd want us to think about, um, especially if we're comparing to type 2 diabetes, um, really the reason why we care about treating, right, is because we want to prevent all of those other health outcomes, like reducing cardiovascular disease, cancer, liver disease, et cetera. And the trials um, that were included in the meta-analysis did not look at those outcomes. And I'm not aware of any trials that do, but if somebody else does, I'd be really interested in reading those. Um, of course, we do know that there are studies that correlate alcohol use and, and health risks. So the idea is that if we're giving a medication to a patient to reduce their alcohol consumption, that should translate to a reduction in risk, but we don't actually have the evidence to say that for sure. Nonetheless, despite uh, these limitations, in 2017, the American Psychiatric Association did publish guidelines for the treatment of alcohol use disorder in outpatient settings. And they do recommend naltrexone and acamprosate as first-line agents for either goal, if your patient has a goal of abstinence or alcohol reduction. They include disulfiram as an appropriate second-line agent but really only for those patients who desire abstinence. And that makes sense. You know, if your patient's goal is to just reduce alcohol consumption, first of all, it's not going to be ethical to give them disulfiram because they're going to feel horrible. Um, but second of all, it's not going to work because your patient's going to stop taking it. And then the APA guidelines also recommend gabapentin or topiramate as an other uh, second-line agent uh, for either goal. Another way to look at these guidelines uh, would be through a flowchart. So first line would be acamprosate or naltrexone. If the patient doesn't respond to the first agent tried or if they're intolerant to that one, the APA would actually re recommend switching to the other one. And, and a question that I asked is, well, why not just combine the two and see if we could get added benefit? Um, this was not included in that meta-analysis that I discussed, but there has been a trial that asked that exact question. Does the combination of acamprosate and naltrexone improve outcomes compared to either one of those agents as monotherapy? And the answer is no. Um, so the combination, at least at this time, is not recommended. And then the APA would recommend if your patient does not respond to um, acamprosate or naltrexone, or if they're intolerant to those, or, and they give this really interesting little loophole, if your patient just prefers, it's appropriate to use gabapentin, topiramate, or disulfiram. And so I think what the APA is really saying is that we should be taking an individualized patient approach with uh, these medications. And that's what we're gonna talk about next but first, we are going to do our second um, assessment question. So which of the following medications is FDA approved to treat alcohol use disorder and is recommended as a first-line agent by the APA? And our choices are A, acamprosate, B, gabapentin, C, disulfiram, or D, topiramate. We're getting quite a few responses in, and everybody seems to be going with A, acamprosate, which is correct. Gabapentin and topiramate answers B and D. Although they are recommended by the APA, they're not recommended as first-line agents, and they are not FDA-approved for that indication. They're used off-label. Disulfiram is FDA-approved, um, but is recommended as a second-line agent by the APA. So moving on to learning objective number three. How do we pick one of these medications for our patient. 
so to do that, I think we need to take a look at these medications in a few more parameters. Uh, let's take a look at them in terms of the safety considerations that we should be thinking about for our patients. Uh, secondly, what other things can these medications treat? And then thirdly, what adherence factors might impact our patient's ability and willingness to take these medications as prescribed? So first of all, for safety considerations. Uh, this chart compares the contraindications and precautions for these different agents. Uh, you'll see here for patients with renal dysfunction, which would be defined as a creatinine clearance of less than 30, acamprosate and topiramate are not recommended. Gabapentin could still be used, but you will need to uh, make some dose adjustments uh, based on your patient's renal function. In the case of severe hepatic dysfunction, which certainly could be a concern for our alcohol use disorder patients, naltrexone, disulfiram, and topiramate are not recommended. Uh, for drug interactions, I'm only going to talk today about the contraindicated drug interactions. Of course, all of these medications are going to have multiple other drug interactions. But in terms of the ones that you certainly want to avoid, because naltrexone is an opioid antagonist, you definitely don't want to give it to any patient that needs to be on chronic opioid therapy. Now, certainly naltrexone could be held um, in the setting of an elective surgery coming up or something like that, but if, you need a, if a patient needs to be on chronic opioids, naltrexone would not be appropriate. Disulfiram is contraindicated with metronidazole because the combination has been associated with developing psychosis. Now, that association was primarily observed in inpatients being treated for alcohol use disorder, but nevertheless, it's not recommended um, at all. And then this might seem obvious, but disulfiram is also contraindicated with alcohol. Um, but the reason I put it up here as a, as a contraindicated drug interaction is that a very important counseling point for our patients is going to be avoiding unintentional alcohol consumption. So high vinegary foods can sometimes interact with disulfiram in the same way that alcohol does. Um, alcohol can hide in a lot of the over-the-counter cough syrups, uh, for example, so we'd want to teach our patient to read the label. Um, alcohol is present in some types of mouthwashes. And there's even been reports of topical use of aftershaves that contain alcohol as actually interacting with disulfiram and causing a, a bad reaction. So uh, very important to counsel our patients on that front. Now in terms of mental health, you'll notice that for acamprosate, naltrexone, gabapentin, and topiramate, it's all recommended that you monitor your patient for new or worsening symptoms of anxiety or depression. Certainly not contraindicated to take these medications in those situations, um, but we should just be watching for any changes. And then because disulfiram, again, has been linked with psychosis, we would want to avoid it in patients with a history of psychosis. For our elderly patients, you'll notice gabapentin and topiramate are both on the beers list for potentially inappropriate medications for use in the elderly. And the reason for that is that they both increase the fall risk. Now, I think you could argue that uncontrolled alcohol use probably also increases fall risk, and so the benefits likely outweigh the risks, but certainly something that you'd want to consider. And then in this miscellaneous other category, um, acamprosate, can actually raise calcium levels in some situations. And so if you have a patient with pre-existing hypercalcemia, you'd likely want to avoid it. In the case of disulfiram, it's also recommended to avoid in the case of myocardial disease. Um, and that's because one of the side effects of the disulfiram, particularly if combined with alcohol, can be that palpitations. 
And then finally, topiramate, interestingly enough, can induce kidney stones. So if you have a patient with a history of nephrolithiasis, don't pick topiramate. That's just mean-spirited and make them hurt. All right, so more of the common side effects of these medications. Uh, for acamprosate, it will commonly cause uh, diarrhea, insomnia, and itching. Uh, for naltrexone, it more commonly causes nausea, headache, and feeling nervous, which might be part of the reason why it can induce anxiety symptoms in a person with underlying anxiety issues. Uh, disulfiram can increase liver enzymes, so that would be something to monitor. And it can also cause fatigue, although um, it's been said usually that those side effects occur within the first two weeks of taking the medication and get better um, afterwards. Both gabapentin and topiramate are medications that we titrate on to reduce um, the development of these side effects, uh, but for gabapentin, the more common ones are dizziness, tiredness, and uh, fluid retention. And then for topiramate, abnormal serum bicarbonate levels, decreased appetite, confusion or impaired cognition, and then tiredness as well can be caused. All right, so what else can these medications do? I think this is kind of fun. Um, so as far as I'm aware, uh, there's no other compelling indications either on-label or off-label for acamprosate or disulfiram. But again, if you know of something, please let me know. Um, but there are quite a few other indications for the other medications. So naltrexone is FDA-approved to treat opioid disorder. So it might be an attractive option if you have a patient who has both. Um, it is also approved in combination with bupropion to treat uh, weight loss in the setting of obesity, off-label, it can be used for the same uh, purpose as monotherapy. Gabapentin has quite a few different uses. Um, it is FDA approved for seizure disorder and neuropathy. A specific formulation of gabapentin called gabapentin enacrobil is approved for restless leg syndrome. And then off-label, gabapentin has also been uh, investigated and found effective for anxiety and cannabis use disorder. And then finally, dopiramate is FDA-approved for seizure disorder and migraine prophylaxis. In combination with fentyramine, topiramate is also approved to uh, improve weight loss and obesity, off-label as monotherapy for the same purpose. Um, also off-label, topiramate has been used for binge eating disorder and essential tremor. So not saying that you'd have to pick one of these medications if your patient had one of these other um, conditions, but it's always nice to treat more than one thing with one medication to avoid polypharmacy whenever, whenever possible. Finally, what adherence factors should we be considering for our patients? So this table kind of compares the dosage forms available for these different medications and the dosing regimen that our patient would be asked uh, to complete. So for acamprosate, um, you can see it's kind of a bugger. Um, it's only available in one tablet strength, the 333 milligrams, but it's dosed as 666 milligrams, which would be two tablets, three times a day. And now we know for each time a day that we ask a patient to take a medication, our adherence levels drop off exponentially. Um, so adherence might be a, a concern with this medication. Naltrexone's a little bit nicer. Um, it's available in a tablet that you take one time a day, 50 milligrams one time a day, so it's pretty easy. It's also available as an intramuscular injection that can be given at a dose of 380 milligrams once a month or every four weeks is actually the technical dosing there. Disulfiram is pretty nice. 
it's, uh, comes in, actually it comes in 250 milligram and 500 milligram tablets. It's usually dosed 250 to 500 milligrams once a day. Uh, gabapentin is another three times a day um, medication, so kind of like acamprosate. It does have a variety of uh, dosage forms available, including capsules and tablets. But the big important thing with gabapentin is that it needs to be titrated on and off. Uh, to reduce the risk for side effects. So usually we'd start gabapentin at 300 milligrams at bedtime and then increase that dose by 300 milligrams a day every one to seven days, depending upon how the patient is tolerating it to our target dose. So again, you're not gonna have um, immediate benefit um, until you get to that target dose. And then the same is true for topiramate. We need to titrate on and off this medication. Um, and usually topiramate is started at 25 milligrams daily at bedtime, increased by 25 milligrams per day on a weekly basis until you get to the target dose, which is 150 milligrams two times a day. Now this column over here for cost, this is an estimated average approximate cost per month if we're looking at cash prices. And I pulled this data from goodrx.com. So this would not include any patient's um, insurance coverage or co-pays and things like that. But you can see that most of these medications are generic. Um, the only exception is naltrexone intramuscular injection is only available as the branded product at this time, so is more expensive. Um, but all the other ones are generic and relatively lower in cost. All right, so let's put all these pieces together by looking at a patient case. So CE is a 46-year-old male, and he was seeing me to actually go through the results of his pharmacogenomic testing for anxiety and depression. Uh, but one day he, woke, he walked into clinic and said, you know, I want to cut back on my drinking, and I was hoping there was a medication that could help me do that. So I said, okay, let, let's do this. Um, so, his past medical history includes, he has moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. He reported um, that his current alcohol use was five or more drinks per day, and he was drinking every day. Um, he also had anxiety and depression, type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and obesity. He really wasn't on a lot of medications. Atorvastatin for the hyperlipidemia, desvenlafaxine uh, for the anxiety and depression, and then metformin for the diabetes. You can see his labs here are pretty unremarkable. His diabetes is well controlled with the A1C of 6.2. His PHQ9 and GAD7 scores are consistent with mild depression and anxiety symptoms. Um, his ALT was a little bit elevated, but was less than three times the upper limit of normal, so nothing that we'd have to be concerned about in terms of medications. And calcium level was also borderline high. So using a shared decision-making approach, here are some of the things that uh, CE and I talked about. So on the negative side of things, we did notice that with his elevated calcium level, acamprosate might not be the best option. Um, we could certainly still use it, but would definitely want to recheck that level. Uh, we did identify disulfiram would not be appropriate. Um, CE's goal was to reduce his alcohol consumption, not completely quit. So disulfiram wouldn't be a good one. Uh, in terms of the positive considerations, we did identify naltrexone and topiramate might be agents that could help with weight loss. Um, gabapentin, having that anti-anxiety effect, might help with the anxiety. Um, we also did talk about some of the side effects of naltrexone potentially worsening anxiety and the topiramate um, potentially causing you know, drowsiness and uh, memory problems. Based mostly on the dosing regimen, so being able to take one tablet one time a day, CE chose to start naltrexone. 
So we started him on naltrexone 50 milligrams once a day. And a month later at follow-up, he was very pleased with the results. Um, he was now drinking fewer days per week, um, which was something that he didn't think was possible. So there were actually days that he went without drinking anything. And he was able to moderate his alcohol use to, to no more than four drinks on the days that he did drink. So for CE, uh, this medication was helpful. I mean, of course, it's not, it's not where we'd love it to be with complete abstinence, but it was effective for him um, in, in reducing his alcohol consumption. Okay, now it's your turn. So for assessment question number three, we're going to look at this patient case. Um, this patient is a 35-year-old female who has moderate alcohol use disease, and she'd also like to cut back on drinking. Her past medical history includes anxiety, depression, and migraine headaches. Her current medications are sertraline 50 milligrams a day for the anxiety and depression, sumatriptan 50 milligrams as needed for migraines. We'll assume all of her labs are with normal limits, and her PHQ-9 and GAD-7 shows that her anxiety and depression are well controlled. So here's the question. Which medication will treat both this patient's alcohol use disorder and help prevent migraines? And our choices are A, disulfiram, 500 milligrams once a day, B, naltrexone, 50 milligrams once a day, C, a camprosate, 666 milligrams three times a day, or D, topiramate, 150 milligrams two times a day. So as the results continue to come in, the correct answer is D, topiramate, 150 milligrams two times a day. Topiramate is FDA approved for migraine prevention and is recommended by the APA for treatment of alcohol use disorder. Disulfiram would not be a good choice for this patient because, again, her goal was to cut back, not to completely quit. Additionally, the disulfiram is probably not going to help the headaches at all. Naltrexone certainly could be used for this patient. Um, it, it could help her reduce her alcohol consumption, um, but is not likely to have any impact on her migraine headaches. Acamprosate also could be used for this patient, um, would help her with her goal, but again, not help with the migraine headaches. So to summarize uh, what we learned today, like other chronic diseases, alcohol use disorder is due to both heritable and environmental factors. It's treatable with lifestyle changes, therapy, and medications. And if untreated, um, alcohol use disorder is a risk factor for negative health outcomes. The FDA-approved medications to treat alcohol use disorder include acamprosate, naltrexone, and disulfiram. Off-label, um, gabapentin and topiramate have also demonstrated evidence to treat alcohol use disorder. And although acamprosate or naltrexone are recommended first line by the APA, uh, patient-specific safety, efficacy, and adherence factors might influence our treatment choices. Uh, here are some additional resources if you have questions about um, alcohol use disorder and other substance use disorders. I would encourage you to refer to our Mayo Clinic Addiction Services and Fountain Centers, which are located throughout um, the health system in here in Rochester. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism provides lots of resources for patient care tools as well as links to clinical trials. The American Psychiatric Association is where you can find those clinical practice guidelines that we talked about. And then finally, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration um, has links to treatment programs throughout the country, as well as a, a helpline that is staffed 24-7. So if you or somebody that you know is struggling with alcohol use, um, I'd encourage them to reach out and give a call. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. 
Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.